the things I've learned as a pastor uh, that is that being a pastor isn't it doesn't always work to your benefit in different situations. I mean, some of you know that I was a, a teacher and a coach, a high school teacher and coach for the first 10 years of my career life, and then from there transitioned into ministry. And, and that was rarely ever an obstacle for me or a problem for me to be a teacher. In fact, people kind of connect with teachers or coaches, and that's kind of a benefit. But now, as I engage unbelievers around me, I realize the last question I like to hear from their mouth is, so what do you do for a living? Because as soon as that happens, it like vroom, shuts down the conversation. I've tried to say, well, you know, public service. I, I'm, in, I'm in human resources. You know, but I can't do that. I can't lie. So I try to avoid it for a long time. And here's what I find so strange about it is I can know people like our neighbors that I've gotten to know or people I, I like to bike. And so I'll run into people biking and I'll start conversations and, and I'll see them multiple times or I may be in Starbucks and I'll start, uh, strike up a conversation with someone and, you, and you'll see them multiple times. And we can be having great conversations. I can be asking about their family and you just like, you go, man, this is really enjoyable. I'm really enjoying getting to know this person. And, and it's, I think, a mutual thing in the process. And all of a sudden, the question comes out. So what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And it's like, and, and here's what I find so fascinating about that. Absolutely nothing has changed about me in revealing that information. Right? I don't suddenly, you know, get horns that come out of my head or a halo doesn't show up or a collar. I mean, I'm the exact same person the moment I reveal that as I was just seconds before it when we were engaged in this great conversation and just enjoying, you know, getting to know each other. But for the person that's hearing that for the first time, it totally changes their perspective of me, even though I haven't changed a bit. I share that story because this truth in this passage can have that same effect on us as Christians. I've seen it over and over again. I've experienced it in my own life. I was that person who early on in my Christian walk rejected the sovereignty of God and some of the truths that it, that it, it espoused in Scripture because I thought I had a better way of handling it. And so I want to encourage you today to to let God speak to you however he chooses to speak to you today. And understand that in that journey, there are going to be times in your journey with God, it, it still happens with me more regularly than I like to admit, that God offends me with what he asks me to do. Or the way he can challenge me, the way he can question my character. And I've become more comfortable with that because I've come to believe that, that if I don't worship a God who has permission, and I say permission from a human perspective, to offend me, that can't challenge me, that can't really call me out, if I don't worship a God that ever does that, then I have to ask myself, am I really worshiping a God or am I just worshiping my perception of a God? Because our perception is to make God into what we want him to be, and then we're comfortable worshiping that kind of God. But the longer I've engaged God through his word and spent time with him, the more I've come to realize he is nothing like me. And I'm, I'm really glad for that. In fact, he is conforming me into his image, we learned last week, not vice versa. 
So go with me on this journey today. I understand it's, it's, it can be a challenging truth to swallow, but at least be willing to engage in it and see even as Paul presented it, why he presented it the way he would, because I believe he knew this is going to be a challenging truth for believers and followers of God to fully swallow. So Romans 9, starting in verse 1, even the beginning, you see what I love is Paul in his realness in, in this whole thing. As he comes off of chapter 8 and all these promises that God's made to us as Christians, he's reeling because he realizes what's happened to my Jewish people that knew all this stuff, had all this truth, had the, half, this, the bigger half of the Bible, right? They got the big stuff. We just got the little section. I'm kidding. Come on, that's a joke. You guys got to lighten up a little bit. All right, And he's saying, what happened to him in light of this? He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He says, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What Paul is saying is that he's deeply sorrowed because so many of his Jewish kinsmen, his, those whom he's related to physically in the, in the flesh, are, are separated from Christ. They've rejected him. They aren't part of him. And, and he's actually saying this. He says, I would rather, this is a literal translation of this. He said, I would rather go to hell, be sentenced to hell myself so that they could come in than be in the situation where I am now where so many of them are separated. That's obviously hypothetical. He could never do that. But he's sharing the absolute anguish he has over the many, many Israelites who are separated from God. He says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Basically, Paul's summarizing the whole Old Testament here, that the Israelites were adopted by God. Exodus says, out of Egypt, they became his children, his son in a sense, the glory of God's presence in their life, the covenants, meaning the promises that God made to them, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them, he says, belong the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus was Jewish. He came out of the Jewish people, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul starts with just this heartfelt anguish over the fact that so many Israelites are separated from God. They don't know him. They've rejected his son. And so it, it comes to this first statement in verse 6, which is the problem. Here's the problem that we have to ask, is if, if that's what the situation is for Israel, and God made all these promises to them, how can we as Christians who love the promises in chapter 8 of Romans, how, how do we know that they're of any benefit? I mean, look at what happened to Israel. So Paul asks this question, has God's word failed because so many Israelites don't believe? Has his word failed? Has all these promises, are they for nothing? they not mean anything? And if, if they failed for them, how can we as Christians know that they won't fail for us? Paul answers it like this in verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he tells us basically, no, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's, here's the answer he's going to give. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel 
belong to Israel. Okay, so Paul's going to talk about two categories. He introduced this in chapter 2 a little bit, and we'll go to that in a minute. But he's saying, just because you're physically part of Israel, it doesn't mean you're spiritually part of Israel. That being a Jew or an Israelite was more than just a physical thing. Okay, that's what he's saying. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, meaning they're physically part of his offspring. doesn't mean you're a child of Abraham, which means you're a believer. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So there's a problem, and, and the problem was, has the word of God failed? Well, no, Paul's explaining us that that's not, not the case. Go to Romans chapter 2. You'll see this at the end of that chapter. He's saying this at the beginning of this book. For no one is a Jew, meaning physically or, or truly, spiritually, who is merely one outwardly, meaning just because you're born as a Jew doesn't mean you're a Jew inwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So has the word of God failed? That's the problem. The answer is no. No, because not all physical descendants of Israel are part of God's promise. That's what he's made very clear there. Not all physical descendants of Israel are part of God's promise. He didn't promise to save every single Israelite. That wasn't ever his promise. In fact, he's going to show that as we go through this. So the principle then goes on here. The principle is the reason God chose his children by promise, not just through physical descent, was so his purpose of election might continue. The reason God chose his children by promise was so his purpose of election might continue. So hang with me on this. I'm giving you the principle, and then we're going to see it in the passage so you can uh, make sense of it as we go through there. So let's read verses 9 through 13, and you'll see that, the principle that Paul gives. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, For this is what the promise said. So now he's going to talk about what the promise was. About this time next year, and you need some background to get this that that, the church in Rome would have had and the Jews in particular would have had, so I'll explain it to you in a minute, but it's pretty clear. You just have to fill in a little bit. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return. He's quoting Genesis, and Sarah shall have a son. So he starts with, the original promise th- through Abraham. Remember Abraham and, and Sarah? Sarah was barren, couldn't have any children, and God called out Abraham amongst all these pagan people. Pa- Abraham was a pagan. He lived in Chaldea, the Chaldeans. That was one of the most pagan places in the world, and God called him out and said, I'm going to start fresh with you. And he makes him these promises, despite who Abraham was. He was waiting for what Abraham would become in these promises. And so he says, I'm going to give you a son. His, his wife had been barren the whole time. He says, that son's going to carry a promise, not just for him, but for people many, many generations from now. And so 10 years go by, no son. Same thing, and it's getting late, right? Sarah's not a young chick anymore, right? She's past childbearing years. So, so they say, hey, I think we got this, Sarah. You got a, a, a servant, 
And in that day, it was common for a, a woman to give, who was barren to give her servant to her husband and say, have children through her, and, and they'll be our children, but you, you know, she can be the one that bears them. And so they went through that process, pretty common in their culture to do that. Uh, even though it wasn't right, that's what they did. And they had Ishmael. And God said, no, that's not the one. That's not the one I promised to you. And, and Abraham even asked, can't Ishmael rise up and be the one? And he said, no, that's not, that wasn't my promise. I'm making a supernatural promise to you. And this child is going to come through your barren wife, who now is like 99 years old. Ishmael is 13 years old at that point, And they end up having Isaac. Okay? Not because of a descendant of Abraham. Not because they carried it out. God chose to call Abraham out, and he chose to give him a son who would be the bearer of that promise. Now, here's what they would have often objected to. Someone would go, well, yeah, well, I mean, he saw Ishmael. They went about it the wrong way, and Ishmael probably grew up, and God, God probably saw, well, Ishmael isn't going to follow me, so I'm going to choose this other son, Isaac, to be my son. You know, it's different mom, you know, all that issues. It, no, it makes sense that God would choose Isaac because Isaac was, you know, from his real wife, and Ishmael, who knows what kind of character he was by then, so he probably chose Isaac because Isaac was a better son. Okay, that's what the people that object to God's sovereignty would say. But Paul goes on to say this. And not only so, meaning in that example, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, so unlike Ishmael and, and Isaac, who, you know, had been born, Ishmael had lived for 13 years, it was perfectly easy to see who he was, and you could make that conclusion. Here, they hadn't even been born yet. They were twins, and they'd done nothing either good or bad. And it tells us why. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. So God's choosing of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob historically reveals his sovereign choice. None were based on any merit or anything good in that individual. That's what Paul is, is trying to teach us here. They're based on God's purpose in election, that his calling might be the basis by which he saves people. Now, some people will object to this uh, in, in a couple different ways, um, and we'll see some others, but some argue that God is, is just electing a nation or a group through his work. That he's saying, oh, he's just talking about Israel and Jacob's the beginning of Israel, and, and Esau is you know, part of the other nations that came about it, and they'll go in that direction and try to make it just a national that God just elected a group, and then it's up to us to choose whether we're going to be in that group or not. And there's some truth to that, because God does say that about his nation Israel, that I chose you amongst all the nations to reveal myself to. But the problem is it's not an either or thing. See, you can't choose a nation without choosing individuals in that nation. God is sovereign not only over nations, but he's sovereign over who's born into every single nation. And if, if you understand the Old Testament at all, you realize that, that basically only those in the nation of Israel, for the most part, ever heard these covenants or promises to be able to place their faith and trust in God. There were many nations that were scattered all over the earth that never had the privilege of even hearing these truths. 
And to say that God's not sovereign over who's born where is to throw out much of what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. It also contradicts the fact that Jacob and Esau were individuals. And God chose at that point. Isaac was an individual. Abraham was an individual. All nations start with an individual. And later on, we're going to see Moses and Pharaoh come into the conversation. Again, he's talking about individuals at this point that may have led to nations, yes, but here are individuals. The point is not either or. The point is it's both and. We may not understand it, but God reveals it very clearly. So there's our, our principle, and there's the, the uh, and obje- one of the objections. But what's the purpose of election? Let me just go back to this because I think this is a, a very important part of the passage because it's the main principle. The principle, what is the purpose of election? The purpose of election, this passage tells us, that God's people are part of God's promise because of him who calls. Now, understand something. You're just going to have to hold this tension because we'll, we'll address it more next week. We tend to have the, the idea as Americans and just as humans that, well, it's just because I had faith. Okay? I'm not saying, and nor is the Bible throwing out that we don't have faith. We do. The problem is we think that the, our faith is the basis of God saving us. Yes, it is the means by which he saves us, but the basis of it is not our faith. The basis of it is because of him who calls. Faith, faith is where you and I perceive that we enter into this story. But we have to understand, God started the story way before you and I ever came onto the scene. It's like, it's like you guys showing up at church today and thinking nothing happened all week until you got here. And yet there is all kinds of planning, all kinds of preparing that was going on behind the scenes and preparing for this moment here. And you just made a decision this morning to come here, but this had been going on for a lot longer than than you thought about even coming here. And the same is true with regards to salvation throughout history. And that's what Paul is talking about here. As to uh, this right here, uh, we see that, that God, we saw this last week, that God God's the one who's the first acting agent in our salvation. We saw that in Romans 8, 29 and 30, those key verses that says God foreknew and he predestined and then he called. And he says that those whom he predestined, they'll respond to his call. When he calls, they are going to respond with faith. And that's when we enter into the journey. But God is the one who steps out and accomplishes that first. He's the initiating agent. As to this passage, it's a difficult passage uh, here, and I, and I won't get into all the details of it, but just to help you understand it, in verse 13, it says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That, that rubs us wrong. But I love how Charles Spurgeon, a great 1800th century preacher, responded to one woman that came up and asked him a question about this. He says, As to Jacob I, and I loved and Esau I hated, a woman once said to, to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. You see, our mindset as humans is to think that we are worthy of God's love, that we've somehow done something that deserves it, but nothing in the Bible ever communicates that. 
In fact, what the Bible communicates is that we are one big mess. The beginning of Romans communicates that. The whole beginning of the Bible, read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Mess, 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 mess. God even starts all over. He says, I'm going to wipe everyone. I'm going to start out with one. And, and within three chapters, it's a mess again. Then he starts with Abraham. You see, here's what's important about this truth. For us to grasp it, we must first understand that the only thing that you and I deserve as sinful fallen creatures is to be eternally separated from God. And the fact that in his mercy, he would reach out and even save some should be absolutely unfathomable to us, completely humbling to us. So what happens as we continue on? Here's the objection then. Because when we hear this, Paul knows what's going to happen. We're going to object, right? Oh, let me go back. Excuse me. Go back real quick. Yeah, here's the, the principle again. And, may not, and not only so, but as also when Rebekah had conceived and children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And he tells us what it is, because of him who calls. That's the purpose of election because God wants to be the sovereign acting agent. It doesn't mean we're robots. It doesn't mean we don't have faith. We talked about that last week. This is one of those conundrums that two seemingly opposing things can exist at the same time, even though our minds can't imagine it. But God's sovereignty is primary. It's the first acting agent, isn't it? In it. So objection number one then comes up right after that. Here's the first objection. Isn't this unjust of God? This is what we would naturally say as humans when we hear this. This is what we all do. That, that's not fair. That's unjust of God. Well, Paul addresses that. In fact, he knew we were going to say that. Look at verse 14 in your Bibles. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. By no means. Paul knows that we're going to object to this as, as humans. And so he asks the question himself. He's, he's, he's structured in a way to address what he knows is going to happen because this is what God is saying. The answer then he gives us is no because God has revealed himself as free to have mercy. Go to the next slide, please. That was the, the answer Paul gives is no because God has revealed himself as free to have mercy or to harden whomever he wills. God has revealed himself as this. This isn't new information that Paul's given us. It's information that's been true from the very beginning of when God has revealed himself. And Paul's going to show that to be true in the next few verses. He's going to go back to the Old Testament and show that, hey, hey, this is what God has said. Look at what he says in verse 15 when he answers this objection. For he says to Moses, this is when God was revealing himself really for the first time in a really unique way to the nation. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's from uh, Exodus chapter 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, here's a summary, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So that's Paul's re revealing of that. Now, 
it's, it's important that we see here these passages and go back and look at them a little bit. I want to show you a couple verses in Exodus to see what Paul's talking about. Paul said to Moses, it, or excuse me, God said to Moses early on when he was preparing him to help release the people from Egypt, he said, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Move on to Exodus chapter 10. And you see this statement several times in, in the book of Exodus. But here's where you see the purpose that Paul's talking about coming out. And you, I highlighted the three purpose statements with that. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. So one of the reasons God hardened his heart is so that he would con continue to come back and do each miracle. If, if, if Pharaoh gave up after the first miracle... God wouldn't have accomplished his greater purpose of being able to do every single miracle he wanted to reveal how great and glorious he is. And he says that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So this is really important for us to understand. See, if, if Paul had assumed that faith was the basis, I'm not saying that it's not the means that we say we are, but if it was the basis for God's election, then he would have pointed this out right when he raised this question. It would have been really easy, as one commentator said, as all Paul would have needed to say at that point was, of course God is not unjust in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, for his choosing took into account the faith that Jacob would have and the unbelief that Esau would have. But that's not what Paul says. Because Paul says that God is the basis. He is the ultimate acting agent. And, and when we hear that, we think that God is unjust. In fact, that word means unrighteous. It's the same word used earlier in Romans to talk about unrighteousness. And we charge God with being unrighteous when we hear these things. And here's here's such an important concept because here's how we act as humans here's I'm, I'm simplifying this but as humans here's what we tend to do we have this box that we've each created as humans that says this is what justice is or this is what's right or righteous and every time we see an action in our society or every time we see an action by an individual person we take that person's action and we bring it over to this abstract box that we have created of righteousness and justice and we measure that person's action by this box and then we go just or not just don't we we all do that and so every single act we've ever seen every single person we measure them according to this box but then God comes along and, and God doesn't come along because he's always been along right but he comes along in our life, and we see him act in a certain way. And so we bring his actions up to this box that we've created, and we say, just or unjust. But here's the problem with that. God is the box. God is the standard. God does not have an abstract standard that he says, hey, this is what I have to measure up to. Even though he does because it's his character, God is the definition of the box. What he does 
and who he is defines what's right. It defines justice. So we do not bring our box of justice and righteousness to the scriptures and begin evaluating it. This is what a lot of Christians do. This is what a lot of people of faith do. And then we include what we like and we remove what we don't like. That's me standing over the word of God, which is ultimately me standing over God. But a Christian who trusts God does this. Says, I'm under this word which means I'm ultimately under the God who revealed this word. And this is one of those passages that begins to reveal who's God in our lives. Is it me and I evaluate God on my standard or is it him and I conform my standard to his? That's why this series is called Be Transformed. God doesn't need to change. I'm just, that's a little hint. I'm just giving you that information today. That's a freebie. We're the ones that need to change. And God's righteousness is actually defined by his freedom to have mercy or harden whomever he wills. Now understand, God's hardening is not the source of our spiritual insensitivity to things of God. It's not God hardening us that causes us to reject him. We would do that naturally on our own. We're broken from the day we're born, the Bible says. So we're already separated. But what his hardening does, I believe, and I may be wrong, so this is the Bible over here, and this is Chad's best understanding of a book that's way bigger than I am. I believe God's hardening, even as we see in, in Pharaoh's life, is when God removes his grace from our lives in a way that we become even more blind than we normally would with his just general grace. And even when we, he does incredible miracles in our presence, we won't accept him even then. That's what I believe he did to Pharaoh. So that he could do such phenomenal miracles and Pharaoh would continue to be hardened toward God. Where most of the time, a person, when God moves into their life and does that kind of a miraculous, gracious work, it's enough to open a person's eyes and bring them to faith. He'll harden people so that they won't even see it when it's right there before them. We'll see that later on. So sec that's the first objection. Here's the second objection we see is, is why does God still find fault? Why does God still find fault? So if God's sovereign in that process and he shows mercy and he hardens, how, how, can, how can he still find fault in us? How can we still be faulted for that? And, and Paul sees that coming as well. In verse 19, look what he says. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You'd almost think that God knows us better than we know ourselves, wouldn't you? I mean, hypothetically speaking. Because he knows even how we're going to object to him when he reveals himself clearly. So here's the second objection we bring. And the answer he gives, he's going to give us two answers to this one. The first one is this. We have no right as created beings to question God as creator. We have no right as created beings, not just created beings, but fallen, broken created beings to question God as the creator. Here's how Paul put it. Look at verses 20 and 21 in this passage. He says, but who are you, O man? Or woman, that's uh, God's, you know, favorable to both of us, right? Who are you, O man or woman, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Those are rhetorical questions, and obviously we know the answer to them. Uh, the second answer he gives after giving that answer that first we have no right to question him, but then he goes on to answer it anyways, and he says it like this in the second answer. God has patiently endured all human wickedness deserving wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory by showing mercy to some. This is the bigger picture. This is what's, I think, important for us to understand. You can read this book and see how broken humanity is. How often, even when given promises like the Israelites were, how often they rebelled against God. And if we wanted what was fair, I, I, I won't say I don't ever ask, but when I'm in my right mind, I never ask God to be fair because I know where I would be if he was fair. I would not be here today. I would not be anywhere near him. I would be separated from him for all of eternity for the ugliness and brokenness that's was part of my life before knowing him and is still being changed and redeemed even now that I do know him. That's what is fair. And here's what's amazing. I think about this as a parent and I'm humbled, but I struggle to put up with some of my kids' shenanigans and over and over again. Any of the parent for any time, you just think, when are they ever going to stop doing this kind of crazy stuff, right? We become impatient, don't we? But God's been doing this for thousands of years, man. If I was God, you'd all be dead, <laughs> and me included. I could not put up with this garbage from this many people for so long. But this is the beauty of our God. He says, what if he, with patient endurance, has put up with your mess and mine, has put up with election after election with candidates like we have this year, right? Man, if I, it would have been about enough to put you over the edge. He has so that he could show mercy to some who are undeserving. Look at how Paul puts it in verses 22 and 23 in the next slide. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I mean, just pull something out here that's really important and I don't have time to get into all the details of it, but a lot of mistakes have been made by improperly interpreting this verse just from the English. The word prepared here in this verse is two different words in the Greek. Same word, but different tenses or moods that they call it in the Greek. The first one is called a passive tense, which means the vessels of wrath, have it's, it's reflexive, have prepared themselves for destruction. Meaning, you and me, in our sinfulness, we've prepared ourselves for destruction. That's what we do when we're left for ourselves. But the second one is an active voice, which means he, God, has prepared beforehand for glory, meaning he stepped into this mess which all of us have prepared ourselves for destruction, and he stepped in to some and said, I'm going to prepare you for glory. That should, that should wreck you when you hear that truth. Because here's why this is so important. 
if you think that anything you did or anything in you merits God saving you, then your security is only as secure as the presence of that thing that you think made God love you. Think about it. It's true in human relationships. If my wife married me because of my drop-dead good looks, okay, hypothetically, then th- when I, I, let me tell you, when I was standing at the altar that day, that's the best I ever looked. I mean, it's been downhill ever since then. And if that's why she married me, then when it's gone, psh, our, our marriage is gone. If she married me for my phenomenal character or my great personality, I mean, you name, I'm just making stuff up, but you get it. If all those are the reason that she married me, then as soon as they're gone, our love has nothing. It's not unconditional love. It's conditional love. So whatever you want the basis of your salvation to be and God's love for you to be, then just know this. You are only as secure as the presence of that character trait in your life. And if you live for any length of time, you know that most things, if not all things, do not get better as we get older. Church, I am so glad, so glad that I've learned this truth. Because if there was anything in me that earned his love, I would have a hundred times over ruined it and lost it. This is an incredible encouragement to me and an unbelievable blessing, a humbling truth that should just blow us away as Christians. And just just hang with me. I'm going to skip the last five verses. Really, all they are is two illustrations. And I don't mean that to minimize them. They're two illustrations of how God worked with his people in the past, just revealing that he's done worked like this even back with the northern kingdom in Hosea and the southern kingdom with Isaiah. It's always been the case. He has saved a small group, a remnant out of a much larger group. And even the northern kingdom who he, he set away and have never come back, they've never been brought back. He said, these people who are not my people anymore, I'm going to call them my people. Paul applies that principle to you and me as Gentiles, who, who for all the Old Testament, we weren't God's people. We didn't know these covenants. We never had access to these truths unless we were to come to Israel and become part of those people. We were far from God. But now this God, not only in his sovereign grace has made it known, but in his sovereign grace has allowed, you ever ask yourself this? Why were you born in the 21st century or the 20th century? Did you choose that? Why wasn't I born? Why wasn't I born in one of those old nations back then that God had them just wipe them all out because of their wickedness? Is it just chance? Was I, I mean, am I that much better looking that God said, I'm saving you for the 20th century, Chad. They can't handle you. Hey, get over ourselves. Here's what I want to leave you with. A couple of practical truths that are so important. One is about Jesus. When God sent his son down in human flesh to make a sacrifice sufficient to redeem 
wicked sinners like you and me. He wasn't throwing the dice. He wasn't hoping that Jesus would accomplish his work. He wasn't waiting for all the circumstances to come about. He predestined Acts 2 and Acts 4 said. He predetermined, he foreknew before time that this would happen, that these men would do this to his son. It was absolute certainty that God was going to accomplish in his son what he sent him to do. And even though Jesus groaned about what that would look like, being separated from his father in the garden, no, never did Jesus doubt that he was going to be with his father again. His security is what freed him to face the most horrific thing that he would ever experience in all of eternity. He knew without a doubt he was going home. And so he gave himself totally for you and me. Do you think that God, I'm just asking this hypothetically, consistent with it, do you think that God that was that certain and that determined about the work his son was going to do is a God who's just sitting back and going, Man, I hope some people take me up on this offer. I'm not sure if they will. And even though I've said there's people of tongues and tribes of every single nation, every single group in this world, I just threw that out there because I thought it would be a neat idea to be diverse. It's kind of an edgy thing nowadays. And I, I hope people from every culture trust me. And he's just sitting there hoping that his plan comes about. Or are you open to a God who was so certain in the work he did with his son because he was so certain about those he knew were going to be his. Church, that truth has changed my life. That truth is very significantly played into the reason I live here in Laredo. This was 10th on our list of three opportunities when we came and saw, when we heard about Laredo, we heard, you guys realize, Laredo is the least evangelized city in all of America. Fewer people here have a personal relationship. A whole lot of religious people, but very few people know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I could have went, well, psh, man, they're never going to believe. How could I possibly convince them? Or I could step back and go, God, as needy as this city is, you have promised that you are calling people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation to be yours. I don't have to convince them. I don't have to persuade them. Because even though you have chosen those whom you will save, it doesn't mean that they will be saved anyway. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they will be saved in a certain way. And that certain way is the proclamation of the gospel so that people like you and me who are just plain messed up can know without a doubt that God is going to finish the work that he started in us. I thought, I want to be part of that. This was just a tiny little church. But I believe this truth has guided us because 
It protects me from feeling like I gotta manipulate you into believing something that none of us would believe on our own. I get the freedom to just tell you what it says because I don't change hearts. God does, but he does it. When we come in contact with his word and his Holy Spirit opens eyes. Church, if, if it's really just up to people to choose God or not choose him, then let me ask you something practically. Why do you pray to God for your lost friends? If God isn't sovereign, if it's just up to them to choose and God can't intervene, then stop praying to God for your lost friends. It's useless. You need to start praying to your friends or, or, or do something to manipulate them into believing because they're ultimately sovereign if that's what you believe. I'd much rather a God who's sovereign because if someone had prayed to me when I was in the life that I was living when God changed my life, I would have never listened. I should not be here but for the grace of God. And the good news is you shouldn't either. We are here because we worship a God who chooses messed up people who deserve judgment. And he, in his mercy, has chosen to call us out for his glory so that we can't take any credit, we can't boast. We can just say, thank you, God. Only you could do this. So I want to encourage you to expand your box for God because wherever you extend it to, he's going to bump it out infinitely further. And every time he does, he's going to anchor you in truths that are the greatest comfort for your soul. I imagine a church, I imagine a church in our community that's filled with churches that love to hunt and peck and take their favorite verses and, and, and preach their favorite messages, but not embrace every part of who God has revealed himself to be. Imagine a church that said, you're God and I'm just a messenger and I will take you to whomever and wherever you want me to take you, God. I don't need to change a person's heart. I don't need to fix their lives. I just need to tell them about the one who can. He'll take care of the rest, God. And imagine that church and what impact they could have in this city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for truths that remind us who we are and who you are. And Lord, I don't pretend to think that this is an easy one to swallow. It took me many months, even years to really come to grips with my own brokenness, my own pride, and, and all that I thought made me worthy of your grace. Lord, you were patient with me. And you continued to speak to me through your word 
and you continue to pound away on a hard heart with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I trust you are able to do the same with your church whenever and however you wish. I just pray that we would trust you and follow you and worship you as you've revealed yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray.